Hello there. So this week has been a challenging week from a physical perspective. A bit sick for most of it, so kind of wiped out. Didn't get to release a live show on f- Tuesday night that I planned, or the 864 on Wednesday, or a new show today. But I did want to do something I see other podcasters do when they don't have a new show or three shows every week, and it's a rebroadcast. So I was thinking about what show to put out that was released in season one and i decided to go with this one it's with colin o'brady it is one of my favorites from the first season great story so check it out i hope you enjoy it and back to normal service next week with some new shows thanks so much have a great weekend good luck Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey folks, this is another episode of the the 1% Better Podcast and I am delighted to introduce Colin O'Brady. So Colin's an American pro endurance athlete, but I think more more importantly a two-time world record holder for the uh, Explorers Grand Slam and Seven Summits. So Colin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, kind of, my first question. I want to dive straight in. How, like, what part of you uh, is Irish? A hundred percent Irish, or with a name like Colin O'Brady, we have to claim you? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I've uh, I've got some uh, some Irish roots. Uh, goes back several generations, though. So, my family's been in uh, North America for quite some time. But um, believe it or not, my last name is actually a, a composite of my parents' last name. So, my dad is a, an O'Connor, and my mom is a Brady, and uh, when they were hippies uh, in the <laughs> 80s when I was born, they combined their last names to give me O'Brady. So, oh. um, but both were uh, both were Irish in descent. So, yeah, Irish Catholic uh, parents and grandparents and whatnot. Um, and uh, I have uh, have been over to Ireland uh, as well. So hopefully I'm not one of those annoying American tourists that comes and knocks <laughs> on your guys' door and thinks that they're related to all of you. But uh, <laughs> no. No, well, I, like, do have, I do have some roots over there. No, that's cool. And you know, I don't know if you know, so I'm, I'm O'Donoghue is my second name. So we, we share the o part um have you ever heard the story about the o and the famine in ireland back in the i don't no do you want me to tell it to you now or yeah, we... yeah. okay okay so this is a story that i heard not too long ago actually but you know the time the, the famine times in the 1840s and 50s in yes, in, in, in in ireland and I, irish names typically with the o very much stands out as being irish and when there was soup kitchens in Ireland at the time, I think they were run by you know the British, and they were uh, they were being selective to give out give out soup and give out food. So they were saying if if you were willing to drop the O, they would give you soup. So uh-huh. this, the statement was they gave up their O for the soup. So then obviously you still have an O, I still have an O. So yeah. obviously we we got through got got through that uh, somehow. Without yeah, the yeah. soup, without the soup, but uh, <laughs> maybe that's where your extra endurance comes into play. That your 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 ancestors had that uh, ability right. to a little more extra grit. Exactly, push through, push through. So no, that's that's cool. Good to good to know we can claim you and that we as a you know Irish, somewhat Irish, and t- take those records under a, under an Irish flag as well. So that's that's good. <laughs> 
There you go. <laughs> One question I like to ask people, what's your kind of earliest memory? And, you know, sometimes it's interesting to see that memory sometimes ties into stuff they maybe do later in life. Does anything spring out when you think about an early memory? Hmm, that's a good question. I like that. Um, I don't think I've been asked that question before. That's good. Uh, I'm, I'm trying. I'm open. I'm knowing. Going to ask you some questions you've been asked before. So a few an original no, ones would be good. I like that. I like that. Um, what initially popped into my mind uh, when you said that was uh, a very early memory of probably I don't know maybe two or three years old uh, playing in my backyard uh, at my uh, not the house that I grew up in. I know that it was at least three or younger because when I was three we moved to a different house. So it's a uh, this house in the neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, um, where I grew up. And uh, yeah, I'm just like playing outside, running around outside. So maybe, I don't know, uh, <laughs> if, we, if we look deeper into that, maybe that was uh, the beginnings of me just loving being outside and being free uh, to move my body. Yeah, no, no, I think that's cool. I'm trying to do a bit of a study into people's early memories and, and see if there's a correlation to what they do later in life. So maybe that's, you know, you're on the on the right track there. Um, and then I guess from you know from that on, how quickly did it become clear to you that you were you know really interested in sport? I, I know from reading a bit about you, you know soccer was a big thing for you in your early years and swimming, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I um you know I was a super. My mom would say I was a hyperactive kid, uh, and uh, for me, sports was always a, an outlet that I really loved. I think she started putting me in uh, competitive sports when I was you know four or five years old. And uh, she jokes that the reason that I ended up in swimming and soccer rather than, you know, baseball or some of the other more traditional American sports is she was looking for the sports where I literally never stopped moving so that I would be the most tired when I got home from practice <laughs> or a game or a race or something like that. So mm. swimming certainly fit the bill of that. Uh, just a constant exercise yeah. uh, and soccer for the most part as well. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty, I loved sports from a young age and I excelled at them a very young age, uh, as well. Um, my parents, um, neither are, are huge athletes, although my dad's quite athletic. Uh, he didn't, you know, play sports at, at a later age or anything like that beyond high school age, but, um, just, yeah, just loved it. Always loved it from second I was a kid, identified as an athlete, uh, ever since I was really young. And obviously that's taken me up until my adulthood where, you know, here I am as a professional athlete. So, uh, it's been a, a fun journey a sport for sure oh, cool and, and you touched on the parents being neither of them specific athletes that's something i was kind of wondering about was there something running in you know in the in the family there when you were being identified in those early years as an athlete was there one or two major mentors that kind of you that stood out when you look back that really encouraged you promoted you to, to move forward yeah, um, you know, there I had a actually about around the same age, actually, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, sort of early teenage years, adolescence. Um, I had I was swimming and playing soccer both at a high level at this point. So I don't know how it is in Ireland, but um, you're kind of around around that age in the US, kids start to sort of specialize in one mm -hmm. sport or the other, um, particularly if you're playing at a high level. Yeah. Um, and I had, I had a soccer coach at the time and a swim coach at the time who um, were both hugely influential when I'm looking back. Um, not only did they, it's weird cause they definitely encouraged me to play their respective sport, uh, without taking break to play the other one. You know, they wanted me to go full time, but they also allowed me the freedom to do both. Hmm. And ultimately, I, you know, I'm a big believer that particularly even at that age, you know, specialization has its merits, but I also think it leads to burnout. And for me, it was great to be able to, to continue on to play both, uh, until I ended up in college, you know, I swam in college, but where it's really hard to, uh, play 
play both. But, mm. you know, they were huge mentors for me, not just on the field, uh, just kind of kind of in life, also around that same period of time. Um, my parents divorced, um, which ultimately was a very amicable situation and it's not like a huge uh, hardship in my life in the long run. Um, but, you know, having some other sort of mentors and adult figures really kind of mentoring me through that phase of my life, you know, in, in the field of sport definitely had a great impact in my life. So, hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Soccer at the time, I suppose, like you're what thirty two, so soccer was was becoming quite big. Had the MLS kind of started in in your early years? Was was that something you were drawn towards? I guess maybe ten or twenty years previously, it wouldn't have been seen maybe as the the cooler sport to be in in the US. Yeah, certainly MLS is, you know, getting bigger and bigger in the United States. Portland, where I'm from, you know, sells out the stadium every single game. People are on their their feet singing and cheering. And, uh, you know, you might think you're in Europe when you're in a game in Portland, which is very rare in the United States when it comes to soccer, obviously. Yeah. Um, but soccer has always been a huge sort of participation sport in the U.S., even though mm. it hasn't been as sort of loved in uh, the professional sense and compared to NFL or NBA or something like that. But, um, yeah, I didn't really – it was interesting. When I look back now, if I had been a kid playing soccer right now, I think that the you know eyeing the MLS or a professional track would have been a dream of mine. Mm. At the time when I was a kid, that didn't really seem like a real path the same way it would be now, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and so – I, I wasn't sort of drawn one way or another in terms of the long term of it. But I love playing soccer and soccer is huge in the US even when I was a kid, um, at least for youth sports. It's it's massive. Uh, so Yeah. Uh, Portland Timbers, is it? Is that their team? Yeah, exactly. Portland Timbers. Because yeah, I think yeah. there's one or two Irish guys that played with them not so long ago or maybe or there was yeah. is there? Um yeah, there's uh God, what's the guy's name? Uh I'll think of it in a second. I'm I'm blanking on it. <laughs> That's okay. Um, he's in, he's injured right now. Right. Um uh, but he's very good. Um yeah, no, we we've we've got some great players. We won the MLS Cup two years ago, which was actually I took a Timbers flag with me to the summit, uh mm. each of the seven summits in the north and south pole. Um <laughs> we had just won the won the championship and I wanted to represent some hometown pride. So I've got some great shots of me with the timber scarf on the summit of Mount Everest and the North Pole and the South Pole and, and all that. That kind of stuff and they uh it was cool they honored me on the field with the team uh, oh. after i returned with my world record so yeah awesome. i got got a lot of love for the the timbers and the, the sport of soccer in general cool. ridgewell liam ridgewell liam is he ridgewell. irish no he's he, he's an english guy i think yeah. or okay. maybe he's welsh okay. maybe but i, I know the name um, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he's okay. a defender i think isn't he yeah yeah yeah, yeah. good player, player. When, when you were training hard you know for the swimming and for the soccer were you always like jumping out of bed in the morning to do it did you find it challenging was there kind of parts where you were completely focused on it positive or was there tough times do you remember you know i loved playing games and i loved swimming in, in the races so i love the competing aspect of it i mm. wasn't uh one for the practice quite as much um right. which you know is funny to look back on now um it's not that i didn't have the work ethic i was just kind of like oh why are we doing these drills like well let's just race or let's just play the game um and, you know, fortunate for me, I suppose, um, I was blessed with quite a bit of, you know, natural athletic talent uh, from a young age. So I was able to kind of get by uh, without that sort of, you know, hard practice. But as I, you know, obviously move forward as a professional athlete in that, obviously, I highly value um, the hard hours of work and dedication that it takes to get to, you know, a truly world class level in sport. Um, but at a young age, I was kind of uh, always a little bit frustrated with the whole 
process, if you will. So that was kind of somewhat of a struggle for me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I was kind of impatient in in a lot of things um, right. in my life. The same thing, you know, in school, uh, I always ended up getting good grades, but I hated always doing like the stupid homework assignments. I was like, I know the material. Like, well, I, I, can I just take the test or can I, you know, just that kind of stuff? I just was, uh, I don't know, impatient. I suppose impatience. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I hear, I hear it. Uh, and and when so maybe me talking about college, you went to Yale. Specialize in swimming, I suppose. I know you did an economics degree there, right? So, but during the 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 college years, did the dedication or focus remain, or were you uh, did you uh, get into the college life at all? How, how did that work oh, out? Oh yeah, um, you know, is uh, as you're probably aware, you know, collegiate sports in the United States, particularly, is is pretty serious business. Um, it's you know, it's not professional sport in terms of you're getting paid, although you know you can have scholarships and whatnot, but um, you know, there's a, in a lot of ways I was in terms of hours spent, I was swimming more than I was actually in school and class. Um, but it was a good balance between, I mean, Yale was an incredible education, got, you know, economics degree, which is, you know, served me well throughout the rest of my life and will continue to, um, as well as the swimming, you know, there, you can't really, at that point when you're a collegiate division one athlete, there's no kind of hiding, um, from the, the dedication that's required. It's either you're going to do it, um, or you're, you're not going to make it. They're going to kick you off the team. So, you know, I had to step it up, but there was, there was times when, you know, I think every swimmer, it's funny. Uh, you talk to most swimmers, it's a love hate that sport. Um, you know, most of us of course love and, uh, the dedication, the racing and whatnot, but it's a hard sport. I mean, day in and day out, you're training four to five hours a day, looking at the black line on the bottom of a swimming pool, mm. going back and forth. Like it's a little bit, and you know, it's not so social. So it's not like you're playing a team sport where you're also like kind of talking with your buddies in between plays or whatnot. Like you're just got your head under the water grinding day in and day out. So, um, I don't think there's a single swimmer out there that hasn't experienced some of the, the, the hardships or the downside of that. But that said, I think it's, probably the best sports prepare you um for not only having incredible aerobic endurance which has served me really well in my life but also to have sort of that grit and perseverance and you know kind of being able to be in your own head uh, and kind of quiet that negative self-talk that we all battle with at times and, and yeah. whatnot so it's it was a great uh you know I'm, I'm i feel blessed that I, swimming was a huge part of my life although there were moments certainly but uh in terms of college life yeah i uh i've always been a super social guy so for me um you know I, i've always had to kind of work hard play hard mentality um you know i was you know work like i said i always got good grades in school and ended up at yale which is you know a wonderful university um and i was swimming at, at a high level but i also was hanging out having a good time you know going out with buddies and that's always um been something that i've tried to you know balance out and of course at times it hasn't quite fit perfectly with my lifestyle um but i think balance is important for sure yeah yeah that sounds sounds and just on the, on the swimming piece like meditation is something i talk about on this show a good bit mindfulness and i believe that there's a million ways to be meditative and mindful would you have realized even at the time when you were getting into that discipline and focusing on the black line you know hour after hour that it it was a form of meditation kind of you know, it's funny. I, you know, meditation is a huge part uh, of my life now. Um, mm. In 2011, um, I was exposed to Vipassana meditation and went to a 10 yeah. day silent, no reading, no writing, sound mm. retreat. Um, and I have now done that um, almost every year since 2011 and brought Vipassana meditation a daily practice in my life. Mm. Um, 
But of course, you know, uh, we're talking about my collegiate years or swimming years. Uh, I graduated from university in 2006. So that was long before I was, you know, exposed to meditation um, in that pure of a, a form in terms of a discipline. But when I look back, certainly I was meditating um, mm. or, you know, reaching these flow states while being um, while swimming um, and not even kind of realizing it sort of the it's interesting. You know, there's a weird headspace you get into in swimming where you're doing a, you know, a, a typical workout um, set as they, as it's called would be like, you know, 20 times 100 at, you know, whatever, uh, interval. So maybe I'm just gonna throw some random numbers out to, you know, 20 times 100 meters at 130. So you're maybe touching on 110, taking 20 seconds rest and pushing off the next one. Mm-hmm. And it's so repetitive, right? Cause you're swimming back yeah. and forth in this pool that it's so often that, you know, a, you lose track of which one you're on. But I remember times where I'd be like, you know, I touched the wall and I'd ask the guy I'm swimming, you know, the next guy would say, are we on number three or are we on number 17? Like sometimes <laughs> in my mind, I'd be so like kind of drifted off. But it's yeah. like when I look back, it's like this very present flow state of, mm. um, you know, pushing your body, being in that flow, being really focused on, on body and sensation of the body and all that sort of stuff. Um, so when I look back, yeah, I think that there was uh, a meditative practice. And it's interesting as meditation has become, like I said, a more um, specific part of my preparation and lifestyle. Um, I do, again, I, I, I look back on swimming and say, you know, the discipline um, learned there as well as being able to sit with myself quietly for long, long stretches of time every day certainly aided me well. So not to say my first 10-day meditation retreat where I was thrown into 17 hours a day of meditation, no reading, no writing, no eye contact, isolation w- was easy by any stretch. Yeah. Um, but there was a part of me that was like, huh, I've never meditated before, but this is some somewhat familiar. Yeah. And why is that? And I think that sport, uh, and particularly swimming, really hones that skill. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, the ten day one is something I'm gearing up to do myself. Highly I, I, recommend. Highly, highly recommend for you and anyone else. It changed my life for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like I suppose could talk forever about that. Um, but even in a nutshell, how how quickly even in those first few days of that 17 hours did you really start to see the change you know that that the mind started to get quiet because some people i know it's probably different for everybody but maybe because you had already that experience you got there quicker yeah maybe it's interesting so i've done um like i said said, i've done several 10 day meditate 10 day retreats now and it's interesting you know people say oh was the second one easier than the first was the third one easier than the second and Mm. they all are very different um Mm. And not in a linear sense uh, in terms of, you know, quieting the mind. There's times when I've gotten into a really pleasant meditative flow early on. There's times when it's taken me days and days to get there. There's times where I've kind of popped in and out of that. And, of course, as you know from someone who who knows meditation, that the whole purpose isn't to say, oh, I'm doing great at meditation today, you know, (laughs) in terms of just like observing as it is. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's never, it's never quite the same. And, you know, you can't help, of course, at sometimes be a little disappointed, like, oh, why am I not more focused or this? But that kind of the whole point is to let that go and just to be present with what's, what's coming up right in that moment. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Do you listen to Sam Harris's podcast at all? You know, Sam Harris, the... I, uh, I I have not. No, he, he's uh, he's from California. He, he talks about meditation. He talks about consciousness a lot, and he has a few uh, books about uh, waking up. It, one is called, and it, he's brilliant. He's very good, and he does guided meditations as well. Just an interesting guy nice. to listen to. Um, I was on um, I was on Dan Harris's podcast. Yeah, ten percent happier. Um, and he and. Yeah. And he was on he was on Sam Harris's before oh, okay, as well, cool. so yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's cool. the same same world for sure. But yeah, I love love what those guys are doing. Excellent. So 
so yeah college done and I know and from listening to your TED talk that's obviously where I was able to discover you and hear your great story I'd love to maybe if you could talk me through you know once you finished college you decided to go take a bit of a year out and travel the world a little bit yeah so uh you know I kind of like I said economics degree at the end of college I kind of thought my sporting career was was over as it as it often is in the United States after university unless you're winning an Olympic medal um which I was you know a high level swimmer but not quite uh the next Michael Phelps so um I, uh, yeah, decided, you know, hey, I want to travel a little bit and see the world. I had been painting houses in the summer, so I had been always wanting to travel and see a bit more of the world. So I had been saving up to kind of go on a, a trip uh, to see the world a bit before settling into my career, which I think maybe is a little bit more common in, in the UK with a gap year or whatnot, but yeah. uh, in Ireland. But it's pretty uh, not, not super common in the United States, unfortunately. I think more people should do that yeah. um, in this country. But, uh, but anyways, yeah, so I decided to travel around the world, you know, total shoespring budget, you know, backpack and a surfboard, just, you know, hitchhiking most of the time or getting by and sleeping in hostels and whatnot. Um, did you go on your uh, own? Yeah, I was, I was, I was alone. Yeah. yeah. So I started, I was in uh, Fiji and then New Zealand and Australia and then up through Southeast Asia, um, which is where I think you're probably going with this question, which is I ended up in Thailand. Um, and unfortunately tragedy struck and I was severely burned in a a fire on a rural beach on a small Island Mm. in the Gulf uh, of Thailand, which, uh, ultimately certainly, changed the trajectory of my lifestyle uh, and life pretty significantly. Um, Mm. you know, I was, caught on fire all the way to my neck. I was, uh, you know, doing a really smart activity, which was jumping a flaming jump rope, (laughs) which sounds ridiculous. Um, and is ridiculous of course. Um, but if you've ever been to Thailand or Southeast Asia, Mm. it's actually fairly common, the amount of fire dancing and people participating in that. Um, and mostly, you know, if the rope wraps around your legs or get bumps off your legs, just kind of bumps off like a finger through uh, a candle flame. But, Mm. uh, for me that didn't happen. It wrapped the rope wrapped around my legs, uh, kerosene sprayed the, you know, my whole body and lit me on fire to my neck. So, I uh, jumped in the ocean to extinguish the flames, which most certainly saved my life, um, but right. not before about 25% of my body was uh, severely burned, predominantly in my legs and feet. Um, yeah. And I spent the next, uh, ultimately spent the next several months uh, in various Thai hospitals, but the first uh, week was really harsh. Um, you know, the island I was on didn't really have a hospital. I yeah. was driven down dirt path and a one moped and one room nursing station where there was a you know cat running around my bed in the ICU for the next week as I underwent surgeries every single day um, to try to keep me alive basically and the scariest thing ultimately from the whole thing uh, was that the doctors were telling me hey look like this is bad but um, you're obviously you're most likely never going to walk again normally in your life um, and so kind of receiving that diagnosis I think for anybody at any age is, is, is horrible but particularly for me at you know, 21, 22 years of age, uh, having been an active, you know, healthy person that's, you know, kind of think of myself as an athlete or someone who's very mobile, um, and kind of on the precipice of adulthood, just yeah. leaving university, um, was a really kind of harsh, uh, diagnosis and, uh, you know, thing that kind of pushed me into a pretty deep, uh, depression to be honest, um, at first. Mm. And like when it happened, you know, you were obviously on your own, for, for how long was it before you were even able to get in contact or in touch with family to let them know or, or you were you know were you feeling like completely isolated for for that first while 
Yeah, so um, interesting, like small pieces of twist of fate uh, kind of conspired and ultimately to, to really save me. Um, uh-huh. One was I had been traveling by myself for months and months, um, and I had just met up with uh, one of my childhood best friends, a guy named David Boyer, uh, in Thailand just before this happened. Okay. So um, he was uh, traveling over there. He actually uh, was traveling with my sister at the time, and they're now married. Um, so he's my brother-in-law as well, um, right. but they weren't at the time. But he was traveling there and we had just met up a few days before this to travel for a couple weeks together so fortunately for me when I was actually burned um, he was there okay. uh, right when it happened um, so it was amazing to have like I said I've been completely by myself for yeah. months and months out in the world um, and then he of course got in touch with my parents pretty quickly and at first it's weird to say this but at first we didn't quite realize how bad it was I mean we knew it was really bad but we were kind of like we didn't know like what how bad burns can be and the risk of infection. And we were both honestly like in very huge shock. I mean, he's looking at me having skin like falling off my legs. We're just kind of both out of it. I'm really out of it, obviously. And so when he called home to my mom, he said, Hey, there's been an accident. We're in this hospital, but we don't really know, you know, give us a few days. Like it might get better type of thing, which obviously it didn't, but she had this, you know, motherly instinct, which she says like this mama bear type of instinct. And, uh, without hesitating at all um you know she got on the next plane to get over there which ultimately takes you know a long time to fly from the u.s all yeah. to thailand to get to rural thailand and whatnot so she arrived at the hospital on about the fourth or fifth day um of this ordeal um and as i talk about in my ted talk um you know ultimately you know she was the source of huge inspiration and, and change for me uh, at that mm. moment you know um you know what i attest really my re- full recovery to uh, was her coming into my hospital room every single day uh, rather than being afraid and crying and depressed as I was, which ultimately she actually was as well, but she was hiding that uh, emotion from me um, when crying in the hallways of the hospital. But she would come into my room every day with a smile on her face and an air of positivity um, and kind of daring me to dream about the future, saying, you know, what do you want to do when you get out of here? Yes, this is bad now, but we're going to move past this almost in a, in a Buddhist or meditative way of, hey, this too will change as well um, mm. slowly. So let's already start telegraphing a positive future on the other side of this. And she ultimately really challenged me to set a goal for myself uh, on the other side of this accident, which for me was very hard. I, I felt like she was, you know, not understanding how bad it was, which, you know, again, she totally understood, but she was just trying to get me to think positive. And, you know, I said, fine, well, if I could do anything after this, I would complete a triathlon, um, which in my mind was something an able-bodied, strong, healthy person could do and not something that I had ever done before. Um, and so that became my goal, um, for Mm. the next, you know, year and a half that's what I woke up and thought about every single day through my recovery um, which was long and hard you know three months out into this I was flown back to the United States um, and I still hadn't taken a single step you know I was carried on and off the plane uh, placed in a wheelchair when I got home and uh, still in my mind I was like all right somehow one day I don't know if it's a year from now I don't know if it's 10 years from now but I'm somehow gonna one day complete a triathlon and so as I literally learned how to walk, um, you know, one step at a time, as I described in my TED talk, you know, taking that first step out of the wheelchair, my mom placing a chair from our kitchen table in front of us and, you know, celebrating the first step in three months and then the second step in, you know, six months. And, and, and from there, um, it went on like that until, um, sort of, I saw the, 
punchline of this chapter is, uh, you know, fast forward 18 months, I've uh, relearned how to walk a little bit um, enough so that I can walk and a little bit jog. And I, and I finally had taken a job in Chicago and in, in finance, just trying to get my life back on track a little bit as I was somewhat self-sufficient again, um, to be able to move my body just in the basic way. So I decided mm -hmm. to sign up for the Chicago triathlon. Um, and uh, try to honor that goal. And so I, I trained as hard as I possibly could that summer. Uh, and the race day came around, which was one day, or like I said, 18 months after my injury. And I signed up to race the Chicago Triathlon and, you know, finished the race, which for me was this joyful event to have proven that I could overcome this really bad obstacle and swim a mile and ride 25, bike 25 miles and run 6.2 miles and biking and running was not anything I'd ever done, but yeah. there was still, you know, a huge surprise in store for me that day, which was not only had I finished the race, but I actually had won the entire, uh, Chicago triathlon, you know, placing first out of 4,200 and some other participants on the day, <laughs> which was, like I said, uh, surely a huge surprise to me uh, my goal was just to finish the race um, and here I had one uh, you know the largest uh, triathlon by participation numbers in the United States that year so, <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> I remember driving to work listening to the TED talk uh, a few weeks ago and I think it was stopped at traffic lights when you were talking about just that part and I was waiting to hear you that you you finished the triathlon and you you completed it like and then you said you won I was like this guy He's a bit of a high achiever, I think, here. Uh, <laughs> so so that obviously, you know, that journey must have been a huge release, such an emotional probably culmination when you did all of that, not only taking part in completing it, winning it. Was there kind of uh, this euphoric, I can do anything sort of thing coming out of that? Or what was your, do you remember even how you felt just around then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, it was it was a very definitely a joyous um, moment, um, and the win certainly surprised the heck out of me. But you know, even more so than the win, it was just the the finishing and just the sort of commitment to this goal, and it, and it allowed me a moment of time of reflection. One, um, you know, relief of feeling like I had overcome this obstacle, or this was kind of like the final chapter in overcoming this obstacle. Obviously, this I'd been fighting um, to get my you know self back into a physical and honestly an emotionally positive headspace um, for 18 months, mm. um, and it was just like I said, it was this incredible lesson. Um, from my mother that I feel like she bestowed on me, which was this ability uh, to believe in the positive mindset. And really that's, you know, what, again, not to keep bringing up my TED talk, but you know, you, you know, you're, you're mentioning it. Um, yeah. You know, the, the topic is change your mindset and achieve anything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even as I, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about the world records and whatnot in a little bit, but um, you know, even in, in that moment, it was this amazing gift that my mom gave me because I looked back and there was, to me, there was these two really very divergent paths. Um, you know, one was to continue in this negative headspace that I was in, going through this trauma, this depression. And again, it would have been very easy for my mother to come there and cry with me and be scared with me. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I'm not sure I would have recovered from this injury. I'm not sure I'd be, you know, fully walking and mobile again right now. And I certainly don't think emotionally I would have recovered from it. I think I would have gone through life um, afraid and scared of what might happen and the tragedies that can befall all of us. Mm. Um, but instead, having this, you know, positive mindset and this this aspirational goal uh, that I embraced ultimately um, with her, you know, guidance. Yeah. 
you know, led to this incredible outcome, which made me feel like, I, you know, look, I don't think that I'm, you know, any better or different than any other person. Um, and the message that I try to bestow on others is like, hey, look, like I'm just like a normal guy, um, but I put in the hours and work and dedication to a goal that I really cared about. Now, your goal might not be triathlon. Your goal might not be climbing mountains. It might not be being anything athletic. It could be work, business, family, relationships, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. But having a positive mindset believing in yourself, working towards that every single day, whatever that outcome is of you know, happiness and achievement and success. Um, I believe that we are all capable of doing that. And those outcomes, I believe, all live not in the external world, but more so in our own internal dialogue and positivity within us that can radiate and unlock potential. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great story. I think if we were to end the podcast now, that's a, a, you know, a really good 1% better tip uh, that I think people could take on board. A couple of questions on that, and I know we're we're moving through things. But your mum's positivity—like, she always been a positive person. Was this something that she had? You know, where did she get that from, or or is it uh, innate in you know within her? Do you think that she brought this to to kind of your advantage? Um, you know, it's funny. She jokes now. I know uh, several people have interviewed her uh, for various media over the course of this period of time and hearing mm. this story and. Um, you know, her, her line that I think is, is pretty spot on is she says as a mother, she says, you know, careful what you wish for when you tell your kids they can achieve anything. Um, then, you know, she's saying that tongue in cheek as a joke. Um, but the truth is, yeah, she is, she is an optimist. Um, and from a very young age, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money or resources. She was super young when she had me. She was, you know, 23 when she had me, but I'm her youngest child. So she had kids very young. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, even despite that and even despite not having very many resources or being able to buy new things or anything like that, she still kind of bestowed on us this mentality of this world is what you make it. Um, and I, I don't know exactly where that comes from within her, but it mm. certainly has something that has trickled down um, to me. Not, of course, in a very intense way in this moment in the hospital room in Thailand, but really as a function throughout my entire life uh, around, you know, for me, again, my canvas in a lot of ways has been sport, but, you know, it wasn't like a lot of my peers or people I grew up with in my neighborhood were ending up at Yale University, you know, swimming, you know, at that level or something like that. And then that was still a function of like, hey, you want to go to the best university in the world? Great. Study hard. Like you want to, you know, you want to be a, an elite level athlete? Great. Practice hard, you know, like, yeah. so it was definitely this belief that you could achieve anything, but also I think underlying that was a belief that, it also is a process to get there. So sure. not a, we can achieve anything, just you know, put it out there and it'll hit you over the head. It was like, okay, we can achieve anything, dream, about, dream as big as you possibly can dream, which I love, this sort of aspirational piece. Yeah. But then she also zeroes back in on that and says, okay, now what's the process of getting there? Yeah. And I think that is a piece that is often missed. You know, people say, well, I want to be a millionaire. And it's like, okay, I, I absolutely believe you can do that. Like, what are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to work towards to, to get there? You know, why are you passionate about this? When things get hard, what's going to make you keep pushing towards that goal? Um, and so, uh, you know, again, as I talk about a little bit in the TED talk, it's about those, those small steps, um, mm-hmm. to, to reach that larger goal, um, and the dedication to that process. And so, yeah, her positivity, um, has definitely shined through me throughout uh, my entire life and it's had a dramatic impact on my mentality, uh, in the world for sure. Yeah. And I think positivity can become a habit as well. You know, that if you constantly look on the positive and, you know, like anything over a period of 21 days or 30 days or whatever they say to, to form that habit, it, it does start growing and it's, 
it's a snowball effect in some ways as well i I certainly find that from talking to other people and just even in my own in my own life so so that's great and just to your other point early on you were talking about having that natural talent and ability when you were growing up that you somewhat you know said yeah it was great you were good at school good at good at sport but it's very apparent now from what you're talking about is that that's all well and good that you can have that but without having that dedication and discipline and ability to put in the, the hard hours you know you may not achieve what you set out to achieve right absolutely and it you know obviously we've been focusing uh, somewhat on this talk on on the successes that i've had and i've you know had my fair share of, of wins for sure but there have been countless setbacks and countless losses and countless failures in my life as well mm. uh, and you know on the road on the path to getting there and of course looking back i see those the same way i see the burn accident as a catalyst for ultimately a huge amount of success i don't think i would be a two-time world record holder had i not yeah. almost killed myself in a fire which is a, a ironic thing yeah. um, but uh you know there's been also tiny little uh not as dramatic but many other small failures along the way as well mm. that again that positive mindset is 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 crucial in those times because you can either say you know um you know i i heard a quote recently i, mean, I don't know who it was from but uh, you might know but it's something like i never lose i either win or i learn yeah uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's that, that's, that's a mentality, right? That's a saying, Hey, yeah. I failed. Today. What can I learn from it? How can I take this? How can I move forwards and be better because of that? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that, uh, that's, that's, I think it might actually be your boy, Connor McGregor, right? That said that. <laughs> well, Connor, um, Connor might've taken it from somebody as uh, Tony, yeah. Tony Robbins jumps into mind as well. And, uh, you know, the whole, you whatever success is 99% failure and all, all of that but yeah. Uh, yeah it's all true you know it definitely true. is true yeah but that's just I mean that again that's a mindset and again even back to meditation it's um uh you know you can sit there on a meditation mat with your your mind racing and your back hurting yeah. and you can say oh god I'm not meditating well and, and my back hurts and all you know all these external things or you can sit there and say huh my back hurts right now how interesting, right? Yeah, and observe yeah. that. And that's the same exact sensation being observed differently in your mind. So it's mm -hmm. the same thing with, with a failure. You could say, oh, I lost this race today or, oh, I didn't get the job promotion I wanted today. I'm such a failure. I suck. I'm not worth anything or whatever. Or you could say, oh, wow, I didn't get the job promotion this time. Hmm, I yeah. wonder what it's going to take for me to get it next time then. What are the things I can do to work towards that <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and learn from that process? So, um, yeah. yeah. You yeah, I just on my previous episode that I just released there, it was a small kind of a solo effort one, um, and I was listening to. Have you heard of Jocko Willink? Yes, uh, recently. Yeah, someone was recently telling me that guy is intense. He's intense, but he did yeah. a little clip um, that I actually put in my last show. I don't, I shouldn't have, but I, I did. But it's really I'm bigging up his show on it. But he talks about problems and like every time somebody comes to him with a problem, he says good. You know, this is a problem. Oh, I've lost my job. Good. I've I didn't get the promotion. Good. It's all opportunity right. to to get better. You know, and it's yep. it's really yep. cool. The way he delivers it is just amazingly motivational. But uh, I I hear you. Just one last question before we go on to the the the, the challenge and the you know the creation of Beyond Seven Two. So with the accident, it was a turning point. Yeah. But sometimes you, or not you, but people in general move forward and don't maybe realize how lucky they are to have what they have and they, for, they lose that perspective of, of that kind of massive turning point is there yes is there a way you can 
keep it in perspective that sometimes when you are struggling up a mountain that you say yes, hey yes, i'm okay, so yes, i'm so good here yeah, yeah. i'm able to do I, this yes I, I understand the question i mean to me it boils down to two things one you know first and foremost i think gratitude is impre- incredibly important in our lives and powerful um and you know i try to carry that with me every single day so um, and contrast is also powerful, right? So I, you know, if say I'm in the mountains, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm setting a world record, but I'm in the mountains near my house or just even going for a walk or whatever. Mm-hmm. I try to remember and say, wow, like I have so much gratitude right now for even being able to be out here and move my body, to be out here and walk, to be able to, you know, breathe this fresh air right now. And, uh, to me that, that comes from, you know, having almost lost all of the ability to do those things. Um, and then the other thing from a sort of almost mental toughness side, uh, is there are times, you know, particularly say setting these world records where I'm up on, you know, near the summit of Mount Everest, it's minus 40 degrees, you can't breathe, like, you, you know, you certainly self-doubt starts to trickle in. And then I have this, you know, way of switching into, you know, this is bad, but I felt worse. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have... I have experienced something more traumatic. I have experienced something harder. And so, um, again, like I said, I may not be a two times world record or had I not been burned because in a strange way, it's given me a level of sort of mental toughness or recalibration of what, um, what we can endure as humans. And I, I say this often, which is, you know, I, I hope that you or anyone listening doesn't get severely burned in a fire. That's not, you know, that's not the recipe for yeah. success. Um, and having to go through that trauma. Um, but, a, you can sort of learn from me, and the B, we all do go through trauma in our life. You know, that's the, that's the human condition in some respect. It might not be physical trauma, um, but you know, you mentioned you know the death of a family member or a close mm-hmm. friend or yeah. um, anything. You know, we, we go through setbacks and challenges and failures um, and whatnot, and uh, so being grateful in the moments of positivity, um, I think, is hugely important, and also having that contrast of you know. I think impermanence as well, like that feeling of like when something's hard, it's like this is really hard, but this is probably not going to last forever, and and might last a while, it might last a month, a depression could last years, you know mm-hmm. whatnot, but this doesn't have to be the constant state that we're in because life is ever changing and evolving. And um, look, I again, I uh, I was listening to Tim Ferriss podcast recently, yeah. and you know he said something like, you know, hey, look, I don't just jump out of bed every single day and karate top ninja like the mental demons like look i'm the same like i I have my moments i'm not perfect far from you know um but these are things that i try to sort of when i do get down that negative spiral draw myself back in um with with these you know moments of gratitude positivity Mm -hmm. and a a contrast of something of what what is hard and what what uh, i've gone through and what what we are capable of enduring and getting through with positivity yeah and i think the mindfulness and meditation in there makes you aware of those things much quicker and you don't kind of get into the spiral of giving yourself a hard time which could you know last for minutes hours days or whatever once you're aware of it and maybe less reactive i I find anyway that that's a a big yeah i would agree with that for sure yeah for sure so you did 50 full-blown ironman triathlons right for for the next few years in your career yeah, so I raced uh, triathlon professionally. Um, I raced all the distances from Ironman uh, uh, down to the Olympic distance circuit. Um, I actually focused predominantly on the Olympic distance circuit because my goal for quite a while mm. um, was to make the Olympics. Um, and again, we could 
you know, who could we could mention this as as one of my failures or one of my lessons learned, which is I I didn't ultimately did not make the Olympics, um, and that had been my goal from a long time as a kid as a swimmer, and then uh, reignited that uh, goal as a triathlete um, hopes of making the Olympics. So yeah, a lot of my focus actually was on the. Uh, Olympic distance triathlon, which right. again is uh, slightly shorter but different rules and governed by the Olympic Committee. Um, but I raced, yeah, all the distances professionally. I have no idea how many professional races, but more than 50 for sure, probably 70 or 80 oh, yeah. professional races over the course of six years. I raced in, you know, 25 countries, six different continents, representing the United States all over the world and living all over the world as a result of that. And it was a really um, amazing and you know, unique life experience, to say the least. Yeah, no, definitely sounds like a, a great way to see the world as well when you're yeah, running yeah. around and cycling and swimming. Uh, were you competing again with, the, you know, the UK, the, the Brownlee brothers, were they in that same yeah. discipline, yeah, same, same, same that's distance? Exactly, that's okay. exactly what they compete in. And then um, I know some of the, the Irishmen, um, Brian Keane, I don't know if that's a name that's familiar to you or familiar, uh, to yeah. any listeners, but he made the Olympics this year. Uh, in 2016, yeah. I should say. I think he's from uh, Cork as well, that guy, or Curry, because that's where, where I'm from. Uh, I think he's I, yeah, from, yeah, I, I think, think he's that from sounds right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's awesome. Uh, I haven't seen him in years, but I was a good friend and raced against him many, many times. Um, it's interesting. It's a, it's a very international circuit. Obviously, everyone's trying to make the Olympics, and each country can send uh, you know three, two to three participants, depending on the world ranking, um, to the Olympics. But it ends up becoming this kind of weird family where you're traveling around the world competing against each other. And, of course, as you're competing, you know, you're trying to rip each other's throats out and win races. Um, yeah. But all of the rest of the time, you're on this kind of traveling circus together. So there's a lot of camaraderie between yeah. uh, competitors and countries and whatnot. So you ultimately end up becoming really good friends with a lot of people out there and met, you know, wonderful people from around the world. And now that I'm not competing, they continue, of course, they live on as, as friendships and not as adversaries on the race course. <laughs> brilliant yeah no that's uh that's really cool so look i know we're we're 45 minutes in i'm conscious of time i don't want to, to eat into your morning too much but i definitely want to talk about the challenge so when you finished your professional triathlete career um while you were doing it i guess was there was there an idea forming was there other plans coming and did it all culminate or, or come towards the, the the summits and the poles is that what was in in, in your mind yeah, you know, in 2014, um, I, uh, again, was still racing triathlon at the time and racing triathlon at a very high level. In fact, I had just won uh, a professional half Ironman race, um, which was which was great. And I was 29 at the time. Um, and, um, you know, uh, the peak age for triathlon, quite honestly, is actually a little bit older than that. So it's, you mm. know, mid to late 30s often, particularly for Ironman triathlon. And so there was a pathway for me to continue racing professionally for many more years. I had solid sponsorship, um, and that was sort of the pathway it looked like I was headed down. But I kind of had this feeling after racing, you know, professionally for five or six years of kind of like, I've done this. Like the, the, the chapter, at least for me, felt somewhat um, complete. And I was kind of sitting with myself and thinking, you know, but what do I value? And one was I still super value being an athlete um, and being an elite athlete and pushing my body to, you know, extreme heights, mm -hmm. uh, both physically and I suppose, uh, or both, both literally and metaphorically um, in this case. Um, but uh, also... I felt like I wanted, I felt called to do something sort of greater than myself. I felt that at this, at some point, the triathlon path was, I don't want to say self-serving because that takes away from other people's journey, but it felt, you know, very much 
for me, you know, I was racing and I was either winning or losing and, you know, the sponsors would be happy or they'd be disappointed. Mm. Um, and it kind of ended there. And again, I wouldn't take it back for anything. And, and that's not to diminish my experience or anyone else's experience as a professional athlete, because it's an incredible gift to do that. Yeah. But I felt called to see if I could somehow then combine what I was doing as an athlete to create something larger than myself. Um, and I had always been passionate about the mountains, far from a professional mountaineer. Um, and certainly when I went out in the world and told people that I thought I could set the world record for the seven summits and explorers grand slam, um, people thought I was pretty crazy. Um, and it wasn't going to work out, uh, very well for me. Um, but you know, I was super passionate about that goal and, uh, in a greater sense, I was passionate about using, you know, I thought that if I'm out in the world setting this, you know, pretty dramatic world record, that there would be a media component to what I was doing and a storytelling arc that could have value beyond my own personal success or failure. And so my fiance, Jenna Bisa, uh, myself, we dedicated pretty much our whole life, um, to this project. And long before I was able to actually set off on this expedition, it was crafting this project and in the idea of inspiring kids, um, to get outside and move their body, live out active and healthy lives. Um, and there's a huge wellness component to, to that in terms of, you know, nutrition and diet and whatnot. And again, this wasn't me trying to convince kids around the country and world to, you know, climb Mount Everest. It was uh, more so, you know, catching their attention by this dramatic world record story mm. um, and the overcoming obstacle piece of my personal narrative of, you know, being burned in a fire for them to think about sort of their own goals and their own lives. And I have a fundamental belief that no matter what goal you set, um, and that again could be an academic, you know, we ask kids, you know, what's your Everest? And they say, oh, my Everest is to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. Or, you know, my Everest is to be a, a concert pianist one day or whatever. You know, these young kids, you know, with, with huge goals and dreams. I love that about young kids right there. Mm -hmm. They dare to dream. Um, and in adulthood, we too often for, uh, lose lose that uh um, naivete, I suppose. Um, but I believe even through adulthood, we should just dare to dream huge and go after our dreams. Um, but that was really what this project, uh, was foundationally built upon. And that was amazing. Um, and, and, you know, we can definitely get into the more of the details of the world record itself and mm. the process of high achievement there. But for me, the greatest joy has come from being able to do something myself that I'm very proud of, um, but doing that in, in for a larger purpose and ultimately with the partnerships we formed uh, with other nonprofits and the formation of our own nonprofit, um, you know, we were able to reach and I continue to talk to kids, um, but we were able to reach, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids in, in various different mediums and ways. And, you know, you have teachers bring this story into the classroom as I was literally live blogging and Snapchatting from yeah. the summit of Everest and all these places and really telling this story in real time um, and inspiring again, inspiring kids to think about their own lives and to think about a world outside of the the narrow world that we sometimes get caught in and that there's a whole world out there of of adventure and exploration um and uh health wellness etc uh, i could go into more detail but that's kind of sure. that was kind of the, the um the the vision and dream behind beyond seven two cool and one thing i t touch on you mentioned your values right then there's probably a side question to normal questions you might get but um one of the things I do, I'm kind of a coach as well, uh, outside of my day job and professional business coach. And I think identifying what your core value set help massively with your decision making going forward and what you want to do in your life. And I, I, very few people that I've talked to that, that actually really have a clear view of what their, their values are or were or go through an exercise or a process of identifying them. So it sounded like after you finished the, the triathlons, as you were forming this you did something around looking at what those were were they something that you were very aware of all along or did you have a 
an approach to identify what they were and how they sat with you? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I, you know, for me, uh, it was there was not no specific methodology to forming that. That's uh, something I'm certainly thinking about constantly and reevaluating. You know, as I go, I do have a practice. Um, again, sort of passed down to me from my parents who do this every year, but every year at the beginning of the year, I, you know, sit down and, and write down goals for the year. Mm. And I, then I also review, uh, the goals from the previous year. And, and sometimes those goals are really short term, like, uh, I don't know, some, some small little thing that I want to accomplish in the next week, maybe. And some of those are multi-year goals. Hey, in, in 10 years, I want to, you know, move towards this, you know, outcome. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of give myself the freedom to write those goals. And so when I'm evaluating those goals, I'm also saying, oh, did I achieve? that little small term thing or I'm like oh am I moving towards this larger gang and is this larger goal still a part of my core value should I include that again on this year's goal setting or am I not working towards that long term you know outcome at this point um so that's been a way just as a life um I also journal frequently um throughout my entire life um of just sort of you know self-reflection in that way but particularly as beyond seven two was forming um you know coincidentally it was also uh, when I got engaged to Jenna um, we were in the mountains in Ecuador. I had just finished up racing, um, for this, for the year. And we went and climbed a few mountains together. Yeah. Um, and I asked her to marry me on the summit of Ecuador's third tallest mountain at, you know, almost 19,000 feet, which was a, of course, a joyous moment for me, but also yeah. a moment of, uh, life transition of really taking that next, you know, step of commitment in our relationship. Um, and, and, um, so it, it kind of, we posed to ourselves the question of, well, what do we want life together to look like? Again, we had been together for many years and she had been out on the road with me with triathlon for five plus years. We, we actually met on that trip right before I was burned. So we met, okay. um, you know, more than 10 years ago. So we've been together quite a long time. Um, but you know, you know, as you're obviously thinking about marriage and the next phase of life allows us to kind of ask that question, well, what do you want to, you know, life to look like and whatever. And that allowed us to evaluate our core values, um, together, which ultimately spawned this project. But it's funny, someone pointed, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in this. Um, and I'm sure as a coach for you, you have many methodologies for kind of pulling this out of people. But one mm. that I've found that's super simple mm. is uh, to ask people to journal or write down um, the five happiest days that they can remember in their entire life. Mm. Um, and uh, it may seem like a simple exercise, but once you start deep, diving deeper, you're like, my five happiest days, huh? What does that look like? And then when you get those five written down, um, there's something interesting that comes up, which is you can start to see patterns in yeah. well, what are the types of things that make me happy? You know, are the days that make me happy, are they success or achievement driven? So you could say my happiest day was the day that I, you know, graduated from this great university or got this great job or whatever, you know, yeah. whereas somebody else might write my five happiest days. They might be like, Oh, I was on this family vacation. And then I was spending this really intimate time with this loved one. And I was doing this and I was like, Oh wow, your core values are actually around family and community and whatever. And again, yeah. there's no right answer to this question, but if you write down your five happiest days, you start might just start to see some patterns in what your core values are. Mm. And thus, if your core values are around, spending more quality time with your family yet all you're thinking about is your career and you don't have enough time to spend with your family you might reevaluate oh like am i living in alignment with my core values maybe not um yeah. and that's the time to reevaluate that so anyway something i think about certainly a lot and it sounds like uh, you do as well yeah no absolutely and i think that's a, a another angle of of that uh, that technique is one i hadn't heard before i have a few different ones we've talked about others and actually a guy I interviewed recently around artificial intelligence he's uh, wrote a couple of books uh, about it he's done a ted talk as well he's, his name is john havens but he um 
he wrote a book about human personal values and how artificial intelligence might actually make us evaluate what our values are more just in relation to the, the the summits and the whole what it was 160 days was it or 169 days or one uh so the actually the the guinness book of world record just uh published my record uh the book just came out it's fun oh. fun to see my name in there cool. <laughs> um but uh the official time was 138 days five hours and five minutes i believe so i usually say 139 days just to round up and make it easy but okay. um that was for the explorers grand slam which was again the climbing the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents and going to the north and south pole um and then also for the seven summits it was a week shorter than that so it was 131 days um so yeah this is basically started at the south pole uh expedition so dragging a sled across the last degree of latitude uh you know minus 40 minus 50 degrees every single day until i reached the south pole um and then continued onward from there i won't name every single mountain but essentially uh, a non-stop journey i would finish one expedition and get on a plane and fly to the next uh one without you know stopping or resting uh, in between at all. And, you know, at the, you know, fewer than 50 people at the, at that time had even, a, uh, you know, completed the grand slam. And most of those people do so over the course of, you know, five, 10, 15 years as a sort of lifetime legacy project where you'd, you know, train for one of these big expeditions and hopefully complete it and then go home and regroup and train for the next one next year. Um, and so instead of taking that approach, I was literally doing these nine expeditions back to back nonstop without stopping anything in between, literally just uh, my only rest, I would get Sometimes would be coming off a mountain, getting on a plane and sleeping on that plane, getting off the plane and starting to climb again. So it was uh, an intense and uh, nonstop, uh, you know, four and a half months or whatever it was. But uh, incredible moment to stand on top of the final mountain, uh, having set two new world records and really, you know, kind of pushed beyond my own uh, perceived limits um, and hopefully inspired uh, many others and particularly kids in the process of what we were doing. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, it's such a such an amazing achievement. So congratulations around it. Like as you said, what was the previous record for that? Was it's it's in 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 months rather than or months longer, I guess, or years? Was it? Uh yeah. So the record previous to that was a uh, hundred and ninety seven days. Okay. So I took uh, just over two months off of it. Um, and uh, that's a guy, a British guy by the name of Richard Parks, whose record that I broke. Um. And he and but he had done it, you know, I think that then the third fastest person is like well over a year um, at the time uh, uh, at the time. Um, And uh, there's, you know, a couple I think now there have been me, him and two other women who have done it um, in under uh, in under a year uh, total. So, um, yeah, not 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 a lot of people have uh, done all those in the same one climbing season. Of course, as you can probably imagine, there's crazy logistical hurdles uh, to juggle uh, between that as well as specific weather windows on some of these mountains and it's not like you can just like show up you know at Everest any yeah. time and like you know there's like one week in May where you can really be on the summit of that mountain and so having to kind of play with all the logistics and um, how they uh, interact with each other in different expeditions is uh, quite a puzzle uh, to solve to say the least yeah and do you remember like obviously with the mental toughness I, I know you've you've obviously got through it but was there parts on it that were standout low points that you were couldn't see the next steps or was there any major challenges that was almost to the point of breaking oh yeah i mean like you said uh you know we're almost an hour in the podcast i could give you another five hours on, yeah. the, <laughs> on the moments that were um you know really tough and and, and stressful and and all of that uh, i'll give you a quick a quick uh couple of standout list. maybe ones yeah, yeah. 
Um, you know, one thing I, I should point out is just getting to the start line of this project was an incredible hurdle um, in a lot of ways. I don't want to say the biggest hurdle, but a huge hurdle. Um, you know, we didn't have any, you know, sponsorship support to do this. You know, again, I wasn't a professional mountaineer, so I didn't have any sort of standing in this community. We needed to raise a significant amount of money to do it as well as with our charitable goals. Um, and so there was 18 months of blood, sweat and tears um, and working uh, that went into this with both Jen and I. And of course, mm. we're not, you know, getting paid anything to do it. It was just a past, complete passion project, sure. but we ended up spending, you know, oftentimes a hundred hours a week, just diving into this and asking yeah. as many people as we can for support and having hundreds of people slam the door in our face and say, no, 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 there's no way you can achieve this. It's not yeah. possible. Um, and so that piece of it, you know, it's just running from a, again, a, a nonprofit venture, but a, an entrepreneurial standpoint of building an idea and taking an idea and may turning it into reality um, was in itself, uh, again, that that in itself could be its own podcast on on hustle and grind and grit and perseverance and yeah. failure and setbacks. Um, but uh, so that stands out. And then on, during the course of the actual record itself, yeah, there's some some big moments. Um, you know, I uh, fell waist deep into a crevasse in Russia. Um, and so I'm up there unroped on this mountain and ultimately uh, fell into a, a crevasse and was able to pull myself out, luckily, without going too deep. But a very, very scary moment and a moment that certainly uh, made me reevaluate why I was doing this and if I should continue. Um, and, uh, you know, being on Mount Everest, I actually had to make two summit attempts uh, on Everest and the first time I got up above the death zone which is above 26,000 feet going towards the summit and got caught out in a massive storm mm. um, I had to you know spend almost two hours just putting up my tent to get in to survive and that you know you know made me very scared of how powerful this mountain was and I could see very clearly how people get into trouble and often die on Everest um, and ultimately I was successfully summited on Everest a few days uh, after that, um, and I was uh, I was climbing with just my, you know myself and a Sherpa by the name of Pasang Bodhi, um, but three uh, people did die uh, on Everest and Lhotse on that same night um, oh. that I was up there. And you know again those were not people that I was climbing with or who I knew personally, yeah. um, but certainly puts into perspective the the risks and the dangers of of being out there. You know knowing that on the same day and the same conditions uh, that I was out there um, that people were doing the exact same thing as me and ultimately um, didn't come home. From that, um, and mm. so there was very, very intense moments like that. And on a, on a slightly more lighthearted note, and again, you've since you've heard my TED talk, you heard me mention this, but you know, coming down from the summit of Everest, I'm exhausted. It's my eighth of the nine expeditions. I only have one expedition to go, and at this point. I'm about two months ahead of the schedule, and so I'm thinking, great, I can rest a little bit and then go climb Denali, hopefully successfully, and set this record. Yeah. And I'm I'm back down on Camp Four on Everest, and you know, Jenna, I call her on the sat phone, and and she obviously is my huge partner in, in all of this, and she's running all the logistics and media, and you know, she's in a lot of ways, I say she had the harder job than me. I just had to climb the mountains, but she's running this huge project yeah. um, on back end and uh you know she says to me hey we've been doing some calculations and it just so happens that if you can summit denali in the next week um you're not going to set not one but two world records okay. um, because the seven summits record had had become possible and i was like well what is that going to take and she's like well um and i say this line in my ted talk i said she says you know you need me to i need you to put your boots back on uh <laughs> 
and climb all the way back down to base camp right now. We're going to arrange a helicopter to take you from base camp to Kathmandu. Um, no time to sleep in a hotel, uh, take a shower, anything like that. But you're going to there's going to be an evening flight that'll take you to Dubai, Seattle, and Anchorage, and then you'll have about three days to climb Denali. I know Denali normally takes three weeks to climb, but um, if you can do all that, and again, this is a this is not just coming off of Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, but this is coming <laughs> off of you know seven other previous yeah. expeditions as well. I'm completely shattered and exhausted, um, but also intrigued, I, I'll say the least. So, um, you know, long story long, I uh, did successfully, you know, execute her plan. Somehow I made it over there just 100 hours after standing on the summit of Everest. I'm climbing in Alaska up Denali up at this final summit um, and get caught out in a big storm there as well. So, again, I'm rambling on and on. I can it's tell okay. you all the stories that but it uh, there was again almost in a daily level yeah. um some crazy setback or a moment where i'm going what the heck am i doing out here why am i doing this um but in truth you know although i definitely took some pretty massive risks um to accomplish this if i'm being honest um one of the things that certainly kept me pushing forwards in these times was having this greater bigger purpose um yeah. i think yeah. you know, had it been just me trying to set these world records, of course, I have some innate dedication and drive to persevere um, for my own self. But there was something really special knowing that, you know, there was all of these kids out there in these school districts that were following along this story every single day and checking on the blog and sending us little video clips about their own goals and their own dreams. Mm. Uh, and in those moments, you know, like being out on the storm in Everest and having to go down and being really solemn, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, well, you know, that's it. Your Everest expedition is over. This world record is over. And I was like, no, I need to figure out a way to get back up there. And a lot of that drive um, came from not wanting to to let those others down or continue to be, you know, this inspiration and show it was possible. Yeah. Um, you know, the mountains ultimately, it's up to the mountains and, and the weather gods or whatever to really give you safe passage on a mountain. So on some level, you can't completely fight, you know, Mother Nature. Mm. Um, and I always knew this, but I had a dedication that I was going to try a, absolutely as hard as I possibly could to, to get up these mountains and to be successful. And it was great to have a larger purpose really driving me um, throughout it all. Yeah, it, it really stands out purpose, passion and, and your values. And when they're kind of all mixed together, uh, I think it certainly motivates and kind of drives drives certainly drives you on uh, but i think you know from a pattern that i hear from other people when they find and touch upon those it makes things if, if you boil it down it makes it simple but uh it's not always that easy to find what those uh what the purpose is or, or what the values are but um no fair fair play to you um i'm gonna let you go in a, in a minute i just want to just three quick ones um fear how, how do you deal with fear or is fear a word you're familiar with and do you hmm. have it yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, yes, fear is definitely something I'm familiar with. I am, I like I said before, I'm just a regular guy. I'm, I'm human, just like uh, everyone else. I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like every other person out there. Go out and make, um, make gold records, then just like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, um, yeah, fear is is something that I think. Um, we 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 all uh, can relate to in some capacity. And again, I think it it is. Um, like I described before, it's something that ultimately is is external, and it's how we internalize that. You know, look when it, you're standing on the the side of a huge mountain, and there's on the summit ridge of Everest, for example, you're walking on this tiny little narrow passage called the Cornish Traverse. 
um, and you're literally looking down, you know, five, maybe 10,000 feet uh, at certain points, uh, you know, one step to the side of you, you fall 10,000 feet into China and the Tibetan side and the other side of the ridge, you fall, you know, 10,000 feet down into Nepal and you're walking on this tiny little precarious ridge completely out of breath. Um, if you're not a little bit scared in that moment, I think there's something wrong with you, yeah. uh, to be perfectly honest. So, um, you know, fear is something that's ever present. Um, but it's also, I'm aware of the fact that fear is something that can cripple us. Um, and fear comes in many forms. Of course, it's easy to point to fear of heights, as I just mentioned, but, you know, even in a more metaphorical sense, fear of failure. Um, strangely enough, I think fear of success is something that people uh, struggle with constantly. Um, uh, what actually is going to happen if I do and I am successful with this? Mm. Um, and so fear, I think, shows up for us in a lot of different ways. And again, it's, uh, you know, I, I equate it to that sort of that that voice or that negative self-talk. Um, but it's a natural thing, right? The, the fear that's coming up in us is arising um, from a sort of primal yeah. uh, fight or flight or survival type of state. And so I you know, yeah. the, the other word that are or concept that's important in discussing with fear, I believe, is is risk or risk management, um, which is hugely important as well in any venture. You know, there's there's fear and pushing through fears and then there's doing things completely recklessly. Right. Yeah. Um, and just having no um, regard for health, safety uh, of yourself or others. Um, and so I do think that that's a really healthy balance. And that line is different for different people, um, of course. And it's how, how we react to that. But ultimately, if I was, I don't know if I'm meant to be giving advice, but I, if I was going to yeah. give advice around fear, it was it was that to have a healthy relationship with fear is the way that I like to describe it, which is to understand fear, to be able to say, what am I feeling? Oh, I'm feeling afraid right now. This yeah. is this scares me. And then being able to do an assessment, which is, is it, if, am I afraid right now because I really should be afraid and I should back away from this? Let me tell you, on these mountains, mm. there was, although I ultimately successfully summited all of them, um, there was three or four times that I did turn around on mountains because I was afraid or the weather conditions weren't right or there was something wasn't right about the day. And I turned around, went down to the bottom and regrouped. Um, and so that is the sort of risk management assessment side of what I'm talking about, which is how do you make decisions with fear? Not because of the fear, but take into account the fear and um, sort of put that through a lens of risk management and the outcomes and the, the success uh, risk reward equation and then push through it. So, yeah, um, uh, yeah. it's a good one. Uh, and it, so many things come up even on that that I, I won't ask you because like I'm fascinated about intuition. And and, you know, when you talk about risks, there's there's a decision making around that. We could maybe at a later point in a few years, <laughs> we maybe get back together round two. Yeah. This second last one, you touched on it. Success. How do you define success or, or what is success for you through your lens? Yeah. You know, success is in some words, uh, a loaded word, right? So yeah. I think that we too often define success by other people's metrics of success or what our mm. culture or society deems as success. You know, it's, we generally think of successful as, you know, wealthy or, um, high achieving, um, or whatnot. And, um, you know, for me, Success, I think, is defined a little bit more on an internal standpoint, um, which is, uh, to me, it's about happiness or even a deeper level of happiness, which I would say is contentment. Um, that's how I define success uh, myself. Um, and then 
understanding what what makes you feel that way um, and striving towards that. I know I believe, um, and again, it, it's maybe a, a well-worn and trite platitude at this point, but it really, when I look back on this great journey that I was on, it was so much more the journey than it was the destination. Yes, standing on that final mountain and setting two world records was an amazing feeling, don't get me wrong, but it was fleeting as well, right? Yeah. And if I didn't enjoy the process of coming up with this idea and spending countless hours with Jenna over 18 months planning this idea and, and battling through the setbacks and then taking that first step off the plane in the South Pole and dragging my sled there. If I didn't appreciate all of those steps, like that one minute that I stood on the top of the mountain, a newly crowned world record holder is like, eh, like that's not success. Success is if you come back, you know, with um, lessons learned and a greater appreciation for, you know, the people around you and, and who you love. But I also don't, again, as I don't want to be have success defined for me, I don't try to define success for others. Um, And so uh, whatever that is, and that even kind of comes back to those core values. Um, There's nothing wrong with high achievement in my opinion. In fact, I'm fascinated by it, and it's certainly something that I've strived for uh, very much in my life of, of high performing and you know, setting audacious goals and achieving them. Um, but I think that we have to be a little bit um, careful when we define set success by external um, parameters rather than uh, internal feelings. Um, and I'll make one last mountain analogy, but that was, you know, like I said, I mentioned uh, weather before. You know, no one summited Mount Everest in 2014 or 2015. In 2014, there was a huge avalanche that unfortunately killed 16 Sherpas and ultimately closed the entire mountain on the Nepal side that year. Right. And then in 2015, um, Everest was hit by a huge earthquake, um, not only closing the, the climbing season, but of course devastated you know the entire country and left 10,000 people in Nepal um, dead. Mm. Terrible tragedy. If either of those things had happened during my world record project in 2016, I would not have been quote unquote successful in setting these two world records. But those two events that I just mentioned are so far outside of my control. Like I don't control if there's a terrible, you know, tragedy on a mountain or a huge, um, you know, natural disaster, like an earthquake. Like that is so far outside of my control. What I can control is that I created a project and tried my entire self. Would I have been terribly disappointed if that had happened after all the hard work that I had put in? Yes. Would that have made me an unsuccessful person? No, I, I went for it. I tried. I set yeah. an audacious goal, and I gave it my very best effort. And ultimately, that ended up with me having this conversation with your, you as a world record holder. But success shouldn't be defined by that and certainly should not be defined by things well outside of our control, as it too often is. Yeah. No, good one. Uh, as I said, I asked that to everybody, and I, I just am fascinated by the different views. Uh, and nobody yet has uh, said monetary, but I think they're probably afraid to say it on on, on the show anyway (laughs) um so during our conversation you talked about chapters what's the next chapter for colin i'm sure knowing the type of personality you are and what drives you there's bound to be something new uh, on the on the horizon that you're building towards or want to challenge yourself towards no, you know, I'm done. I'm just, um, I'm here in my house. I've kicked my feet on the couch. I've yeah. been getting fat. Um, Watching uh, Game you know, of Thrones gonna, and stuff like exactly, that. Yeah. just Netflix binge show watching and hanging yeah. out. That's um, it. You're I'm successful with, now. Yeah. You're, yeah, exactly. you're successful, so it's done. <laughs> I'm at the top. Yeah. Um, no, no, quite the opposite uh, for me. This is... Uh, 
again, this has been an incredible chapter and there will be many more uh, in my life. I thrive um, on the process. I mentioned this uh, question that I asked to school kids and ultimately asked to many others at this point as well in my you know, corporate public speaking and various things that I do is sharing this story. Um, is, you know, ask, I ask other people, you know, what's your Everest? Um, Mm -hmm. and sometimes people say to me, well, it's great. Now you've climbed Everest, but what's your Everest now? Um, And I love that question because, um, the question means that of course I I haven't just reached some pinnacle that I'm just sitting on top of them and rest on my laurels. For me, the process of getting after it is, is what I thrive in. And so, um, for me, uh, I'm going to be coy and and just say (laughs) that there are several, um, big endurance projects, um, that are on the horizon for me that I'm, um, setting out, uh, will be setting out on, um, in the next few years that I'm planning for. Um, and, uh, I'm really excited to launch those, uh, publicly, uh, when I get the chance. So that's a huge uh, part of what I'm doing. Um, but also, you know, this has been, uh, an incredible blessing. Like I said, I really started beyond seven two, uh, to not only set this, uh, personal, uh, goal, but to be able to share this story with others. And it's been amazing, uh, the amount of forums that I've been invited into over the past year to share this story, obviously, you know, sure. sharing it as a Ted talk where you, where you encountered this, um, but in the many other avenues, whether with school kids or in the corporate setting, um, it has been amazing. So it's, uh, I've been loving, you know, at this current chapter, being able to actually share this story and, and share some of the, the wisdom that I was able to, uh, hopefully impart on others throughout this process. So part of what I'm doing right now is really this is, yeah. is having the opportunity to share this story you know i'm working on a book um working on some other media to, uh, formats to, to share this story which has been really fun for me mm. um while also planning for some other big projects in the future one tiny little one that um is coming up for me next month is a, is a fun little project um that i'm doing um it's called uh 29029 the word zero is written out you can look up the website okay. um when I was listening, but it's uh, uh, this guy, a successful entrepreneur by the name of Jesse Itzler. He's um, planning this event. Um, so 29029 is the altitude and feet of Mount Everest from sea level. And uh, he has, has invited uh, a couple hundred people to the ski mountain in Vermont uh, before the ski season starts to climb, quote unquote, Everest. So essentially climb the ski mountain 17 times in a row <laughs> until reaching the altitude of, uh, of Mount Everest. Um, and hopefully cool. I'm going to try to hopefully do it continuously without stopping. Uh, although it's not like a, you know, serious race. It's more just to see if we can all, uh, kind of, again, set a big goal and go after it, but it's calling, calling it 29029 Everesting. Um, so climbing the altitude in one push or over the course of a weekend. So that's, uh, again, as a fun endurance project. And I love, I love his spirit, uh, in, uh, you know, choosing these fun kind that's of crazy cool. endurance challenges. Cause I think, you know, the camaraderie that comes from the couple mm. hundred people that I'll share that moment with again it's, it's the same exact thing that we've been talking about it might be a random goal to see if you can climb the altitude of Everest on a ski mountain in Vermont yeah that's somewhat random but ultimately what's the essence of that the essence of set yourself a big challenge obviously people are training to be able to achieve that train so embrace the process of doing that mm-hmm. and then hopefully get there challenge yourself find out something about yourself when the going gets tough or hard and then break through those challenges and achieve it 
Um, and so for me, I'm really uh, blessed to be invited to participate with him and uh, you know his cohort of people that are doing this um, to to see if we can all again uh, you know do this do this fun goal. So that's coming up next month in October, the the 29029 mm. uh, challenge. Uh, so that's a, a fun little one I've got on the horizon. But stay that's tuned. Cool. Um, for other uh, other things for me, uh, you can uh, anyone listening wants to follow along. I'm on social at Colin O'Brady on Instagram, Twitter, whatnot, yep. um, and uh, Beyond72.com is a website, so it might be in the show notes. But uh, yeah, a little shout out there um, for I, that. I, I was just going to say, do you want to give give yourself the shout out? So, is there any other ways people can get in touch, or, or you know, there's so much video and content on online that they could read or sorry view to to watch. Um, and there's yeah, a lot of footage yeah. of, of the actual climbs as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of footage. Um, you know, check out beyond72.com, my website, and on the press page there, um, there's some really great pieces uh, that people have put together. Um, you know, History Channel, CBS Sunday Morning, um, you know, many of the different networks, Discovery, whatnot, have all put together little, you know, three, five, eight-minute uh, pieces uh, on the story using a bunch of the archival footage that I shot up in the mountains. And uh, if I'm being honest, I look pretty worked at times in some of these. I'm on the, you know, on the Everest in the tent, freezing my butt off, talking to myself. Uh, um, and feeling sorry for myself in some senses, um, but it's uh, some pretty gritty raw content that's uh, that's fun um, uh, out there. So yeah, definitely check that out on my website as well as like I said, I'm constantly on social media. Um, you know, at ColinOverEighty.com, just just my name, and uh, definitely check out the TED Talk, uh, the Change Your Mindset and Achieve Anything uh, on YouTube. Uh, TEDx Portland uh, was a really fun event and a great way for me to, to share this story in that format. I do I do quite a bit of uh, public speaking um, and I enjoy doing that uh, certainly like I said for school kids but also in the, the corporate setting um, but you know TED is its own sort of uh, beautiful uh, format that I've always loved and been a fan of so it's uh, quite humbling and quite an honor to be invited to share the story uh, in that format on the TED stage which I really embraced and, and loved so um, I invite people to check that out as well. Yeah no you, you nailed it uh it was it was really great talking to you colin i'm i'm i, I do the odd uh, adventure race myself i've done a few hundred k cycles there's one coming up in a few weeks an adventure race here in 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 ireland the quest series and it's something like 80 80 70 80 kilometers uh makes me feel like um i need to push harder now at this stage after uh-huh. talking to you for an hour but but they're they're, they're great events and you know as Sounds you said awesome. just getting getting through it and and the sense of achievement you're kind of floating for a few days afterwards and uh yeah. just getting out, out into the great outdoors is great so i'm gonna l- let you go we've gone way over but uh i couldn't stop because uh I'm, I'm kind of gorging on all this information and great insights so thanks so much colin uh my pleasure thanks rob yeah i really appreciate it and uh i'll be i'll be keeping track and keeping eyes on uh, your next steps all right all the best my friend take it easy have a good day yeah bye cheers man so how did you find it a good show hopefully do take a second or two to let me know and before you do dive off just a couple of quick call outs the new podcast the 864 15 minutes long in fact 864 seconds is the aspiration is now out and ready for listening check it out on the site go to the podcast page there's a link for 864 there or go on to apple podcasts and subscribe that would be awesome the 864 is all you have to search for and it's in all other podcast platforms that you can think of or should be so have a listen every week i release a one minute monday video clip which is also a tip 
to hopefully make you 1% better, check that out. It's on the website on the video page. Did you also know that only about 1% of listeners to podcasts, not just my own, but all, leave a rating, leave a review, get in touch or give feedback. And I would love if we could book that trend and put it to 2% for this one. So please do take the time to give me a bit of feedback, give me some ideas about future guests or whatever the hell comes into mind just get in touch or rate or review the podcast on apple that helps i'm available at all of the social platforms pretty much all at rob of the green that's either with or without the at sign but you'll find it under that moniker so hopefully i'll hear from you there last couple of quick ones support so i do offer some pro bono coaching get onto the website the support page to get in touch few hours a month happy to do that and if you would like to support the podcast that would be awesome you can do so through patreon and also through purchasing books through the book page on the website that goes through amazon and we get a little percentage i'm not even sure what but it's something and finally just to say thanks for taking the time to listen to the podcast i know there's lots of other shows out there it means a lot that you're checking this one out so have a great rest of day week month year whatever it may be and Hopefully you're getting 1% better as a result of these shows. Take care and good luck.